So we're in a sermon series called Back to Work, right? We've been in it for uh, several weeks now. We're about halfway through it. We've been looking at the situation that the people of Israel faced when they returned to the land of Palestine, about 6th century BC. So I I wanted to take just a quick minute this morning to review the story so far, aptly titled on the slide. So there's dates up here. There won't be a test afterwards, although that would be a lot of fun. There won't be a test afterwards, but the dates are just for reference for you. So 587 BC, uh, King uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who leads the Babylonians, uh, sacks the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple of God, and leads a whole bunch of, of the Israelites off into exile in Babylon, right? Fast forward several years here. 538 BC comes along, and the Persians under a guy named Cyrus, they conquered the Babylonians, Yeah, that's right. Um, Who would then later be conquered by the Greeks under a guy named Alexander the Great, who was a minor figure in world history. Um, And and Cyrus said, anybody who's been conquered by the Babylonians, you can return to your homelands and you you can rebuild your societies and your cultures and everything. So some of the people of Israel say, great, we're gonna do that. And under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they go back to Jerusalem. And in 536 BC, after they get settled, they start to rebuild the temple. Now they get off to a really good start, right? They lay the foundation quickly. It's great. There's lots of celebration. But then it stops. And for 16 years, and I misspoke earlier in this this series, I said six. It's actually 16 years. No work had been done. And in that time, their their economy collapsed, right? Their, Their crops failed to yield. And finally, after 16 years, they said, wait a minute, what are we doing wrong here? And so enter the prophet Haggai, right, whose book we've been studying. And through Haggai, God says to his people, listen, I do have something amazing in store for you. I have a future in store for you. If you want to see it, you have to stop making excuses and get back to building the temple. That's what you're here for. And the people listened. So in 520 BC, they got back to work on the temple. And as soon as they did, things started changing, right? Their economy started to look up. Their crops yielded. They're starting to see that bright future coming. But Haggai wasn't the only prophet that God used to speak to his people. He also spoke through a man named Zechariah. And it's to Zechariah's book that we're going to turn this morning. Um, So Zechariah is just after Haggai um, in the Old Testament, right at the end of the Old Testament, just before the New. We're actually going to start at Haggai, uh, sorry, not Haggai, I I have Haggai program. At Zechariah, we're going to look at 7 and 8 today. So you can turn there. Now, despite the fact that Haggai and Zechariah both were responsible to speak God's message to God's people at approximately the same time, there were a lot of differences between these two guys. So let's just do a little bit of background work here on Zechariah. Three main things that are different. The first one is that there's a difference in in the amount of background information we have on the people themselves. Haggai is is this really interesting guy. He's just kind of anonymous. He appears from out of nowhere with no sense of his background or his profession, does what he does, and then when he's done, he disappears. Not existentially disappears, he just disappears from the historical record. We have no idea what happened to him. Probably he died at some point. Other than that, we don't know. Zechariah is different, though. Zechariah's background, his backstory is firmly established. So we know from Zechariah chapter 1 that he's the son of a man named Berechiah, who is the son of a man named Edo, I-D-D-O. And that's significant because Edo is listed as one of the people who returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel in 538. So he was one of the original returnees. We also know Zechariah's occupation. He was a priest. And as such, he was very interested in the worshiping life of the people of Israel, in seeing the temple rebuilt, yes, but also in seeing the other components of that worshiping life come back on track. We know more about Zechariah's later life. Um, The the, the book of Nehemiah says that Zechariah became the, the head of the house of Edo several decades after the temple rebuild was complete. So he had a position of influence that lasted long after the temple was built. And we also know exactly how Zechariah's life ended. He was murdered. In Matthew 23, Jesus, in rebuking the Pharisees, calls them like the people who murdered Zechariah between the altar and the sanctuary. So Zechariah was killed on the grounds of the temple 
because the people didn't like what he was saying. I'm trying to find a modern day equivalent. I think it's something like killing the pastor in the parking lot, but I really don't want to find out. So let's just, that might be what, it's pretty profane, right? It's, it, that's what I'm trying to say. It's a profane place to kill someone who works for God full time. So that's that, the, the difference is the background. The second difference is, is just the duration of their ministry, right? Um, Haggai, as I said before, he, he's very brief. He gives four sermons over the course of four months, in, out, gone, done. Zechariah, though, had this long ministry that lasted even decades. And, and scholars have, have attempted sometimes to figure out why. They, you know, well, maybe, you know, Haggai, uh, you know, had a heart attack and God was going to use him, but oh well. But of course, what, what we know if we understand the Bible is that, you know what? God needed Haggai to, to do something. It was done. His job was over. That's what happened, right? And so there, there's a difference in the duration of their ministry. Sometimes God asks people to do a little bit. Sometimes God asks people to do a lot. Whatever it is, God asks and we say yes. Third difference. There is a massive difference in the style of their writing and their approach to ministry. So, so Haggai is like, um, it's like watching the news, okay? And when I think of the news, I think of the BCTV News Hour with Tony Parsons, Yeah? Yeah, anybody? You, some of you watched that. I know, I know. The quintessential news anchor, Tony Parsons. Oh, so good. Factual, right? Like, that. This, this is the news. I'm reporting it to you. I am done reporting that story. Now I will move to this story. And at the end, it's like, yeah, that's the news is done. Thank you. Good night. You know what you're there for? Good. Zechariah, though, when you read Zechariah, it's like watching an episode of Portlandia or because only like five of you get that reference. It's like watching an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And if none of you get either of those references, I'm out of references. So it's, it's, it's something like that. It's like, a, it's like a series of sketches. And when they start, you think to yourself, man, I have no idea where this is going. And sometimes when you get to the end, you're like, yep, still don't know. Because it's, it's, it makes sense, kind of, sort of, you think it does. Um, but you're pretty sure that the journey was worth it, right? So... Two prophets, very different backgrounds, very different types of ministry, very different styles, but both out to accomplish the same thing. And that's to help the people of Israel put themselves in a position to see God's future come into being. We're not going to go through Zechariah verse by verse in the way we did uh, with Haggai. And, and part of it is because it is a little bit crazy and difficult to understand. The amount of interpretive work that it would take to get to the point where Zechariah's messages are very clear and profitable for us this morning and on a Sunday morning, would take, it would take a lot of extra spade work, and you might get bored. <laughs> so um, it's time that, that I don't think it's best to use from the pulpit on Sunday morning. That's not to say, of course, that Zechariah isn't useful, because all scripture is useful. It's profitable for us. It's just to say that a Sunday sermon is probably the wrong place to really dive into this. So um, instead what we're going to do is we're just going to look at chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah over this week and next. And so if you take a look at, at, at Zechariah 7 with me here, uh, in verse 1, here's, a, here's another date. Zechariah dates his prophecy here just like Haggai did. He says, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. And if we reverse engineer that, we find that it's December 7th, 518 BC. What do we know about this? Well, we know that at this point, the temple rebuild had been going on for two years, right? Haggai was, was 520, Zechariah's 518. And it would actually take another two full years to get the work done. Huge project, right? And up until this point, God's message to his people really had one primary focus. That's the one that Haggai said. If you want to see the kingdom future, you got to rebuild the temple. Do the work I need you to do. But rebuilding the temple wasn't the only thing that they needed to do. After all, the temple is just a building. Yes, it's an important one in the life of Israel. But there was a danger that once that work was finished, the people would have thought, ah, now we've done it. We've accomplished it. 
We've arrived. We can sit back and rest on our laurels, and God is now obliged contractually to bring a bright future to us. And of course, that's not true. God didn't want his people to get the impression that all he cared about, that the only thing that mattered to him, was what they did, was the work of their hands. Yes, it's important. Obedience is critically important. And the people needed to do what God asked them to do. That's critical. But life in God's kingdom is never only about what you do. It's about who you are. Zechariah's job as a prophet wasn't to call people to complete a task. That was Haggai's job. Zechariah's job was to call the people of Israel to the hard work of rebuilding not the temple but their character. And that's the same call that that rings through scripture to us today. You've heard me say this over and over again. I believe firmly that God has a bright kingdom future in store for us at Parkland. And if you didn't believe that when I started here, hopefully my constant nagging has had some effect on you and now you believe that. But to get to that future, we have some rebuilding to do. Part of that rebuild involves accomplishing tasks. We have things that we need to accomplish. We need to reestablish various systems and procedures. We need to restructure some of our programming. We need to take care of some things on our physical property that haven't been taken care of. But no matter how clever we are, no matter how innovative we are, no matter how good our systems are, And no matter how beautiful our building and our property look, doing those things will only get us so far. They won't get us all the way over. They in themselves won't bring about the future that God has for us. And so if we want to see God's bright kingdom future come into being here, if we want to see that happen, then we need to focus not just on what we do, but also on who we are. We need to focus on being the kind of people through whom God is pleased to work. Pleased to work so that his power brings about kingdom transformation. But the first thing we need to acknowledge in in saying that is that, honestly, it's way harder to be the right kind of people than it is to do the right kind of things. It's way harder. Personally, honestly, I would, I would kind of prefer it, actually, if God would just give a checklist. That would be my preference, truthfully, because then I could measure, here's the checklist, and I could measure what I'm doing, and I could cross things off the list, and then I'd be like, see, God is happy with me because boom, 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 look at all the things that I did. But completing checklists of tasks to make God happy, that's what religion is. That's legalism. And it's the antithesis of God's kingdom. It's legalistic, it's formulaic, and ultimately it does not have life. God's kingdom involves relationship building in a way that's personal because God is personal and in a way that's living and active because God is living and active and involved in his creation. You you don't follow a checklist when you are building a friendship with someone, right? You you, You might try but you might not have any friends. Um, You don't don't just come up with your friend checklist, right? It it would be easy. It would be great if we could, right? So let's see. um, So, uh, yeah, so I've gone over. You know, we've had coffee together. That's good. And our kids have played together. That's good. And then we've had dinner at their place, and they've had dinner at our place. And, uh, oh, hey, look at that. Now we're friends. Here's your friend card. It says you're a friend with me, and I'm a friend with you. Great. We're, We're good, right? Like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think about that. Of course we don't do that. But despite the fact that we know that's how you build a relationship, we really have a hard time breaking our addiction to religion. We want it, actually. 
And what ends up happening is we, we basically try to negotiate with God and set the terms for our relationship. We do a whole bunch of spiritual things and we say to him, that's good, right? Look at all these things I did. Look at all these tasks that I accomplished. Hoping that maybe he'll overlook the fact that inside we're actually really spiteful or we're envious or we're unloving or any number of things like that. But doing good things is not good enough. And that's the message of the kingdom. And if you think God is being unfair in saying that, let's reorient our our minds here to realize that God is God, and we're not God. So God gets to decide what's acceptable. He's the one who gets to say, this is how it's going to be. He's the one who gets to say, these are the conditions under which I will come and I will pour out my power and my blessing. God is very, very interested in our success. He is. God wants his people to be successful so that his kingdom expands and his glory is more well-known and that's always been the case. If you flip over to uh, chapter 8 of Zechariah, The first verse, first and second verse says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. God wants his people to succeed. I'm eliding a whole bunch of theology here that equates Israel with the church. Just, I, I don't have time to sort of go into the nuances of that discussion. Go with me on this. We are God's people. God wants his people to be successful. He is jealous for his church. And if we, and so, because that's true, if we pay attention to follow the things that he puts in place, to to live according to the structure that he has established, then he is going to be happy to bring about success. But what we have to understand is that the inverse of that is also true. If we don't listen to him, if we want to do things our way instead and say, I actually get to, to dictate the terms of this relationship, God won't just prevent us from being successful. He's not ambivalent. God will actually bring about disaster. It's exactly what happened to Israel. And just like we have a hard time breaking our addiction to religion and desiring to fill out checklists and everything, that's the human condition that's been going on for a very long time. And it's what got the Israelites in trouble time and time again. In fact, the problem of religion actually forms the backdrop of this entire two-chapter section here. So take a look again, flip back if you could, to to Zechariah chapter 7. This is the situation. Zechariah sets the stage. And if you start at verse 2. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemelech and their men, to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Give you the background here. So the people of Israel, right, they were in Persia now, and they were given permission to come back to Jerusalem and to rebuild, but not all of the Jews came back. Some of them stayed in Persia. God gave them a choice. He said, you can either, you can go back if you want, you can stay if you like. Some of the Jews who stayed, uh, eventually, I'm not sure what the timeline would be here exactly, but some of the Jews who stayed, one was a man named Mordecai. You can read a little bit about him and something that happened to him in Persia in the book of Esther. But while they were in exile, the Jews realized that they didn't have a temple anymore. The temple was where all the worship happened, so... What are we going to do? So they had, they had established uh, a new sort of system uh, of worship without a temple. It's where the synagogues got started. And what they did was they established a number of fasts, a number of, of sort of holy days to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem and all of the events surrounding it. 
And these fasts had become very critical events in their calendar. And there were actually four of these, um, fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months of the Jewish calendar. Each of them tied to a significant thing that happened over the course of Israel's uh, basically destruction. One of their fasts was to commemorate the day that the Babylonians destroyed the temple. That was the fast of the fifth month. But now that the temple was being rebuilt, there was a question about whether or not they should continue that fast. If the reason we're fasting is to remember that the temple was destroyed and the temple's no longer destroyed, do we still need to fast about that? Like, is that, is that important? And so the, the Jews who were still in Persia sent this group of people led by two members of the biblical all-names team. Uh, Regemelech is one of my favorites, actually. Um, I feel like I missed an opportunity there with my boys, but that's okay. Um, they sent this group of people to Jerusalem to ask because the, the temple, the priests of the temple were the only ones who had the authority to make changes to these kinds of things. What's interesting about this is that God doesn't actually answer that question, not yet anyway, because he knew the question wasn't coming from the right place. So here is what God says in response. Should I weep and abstain, he says. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? God's getting behind their question of doing. They came and said, so situations changed. Do we still need to do this? Will this still make God happy? And God said, listen, that's not actually the right question to ask. Let's talk about who you are. These fasts that the people started may have come from the right place, but somewhere along the way, as with every single tradition, it loses its significance and it becomes just something you do. And now these were empty rituals. And they were rituals that the people did year after year so that they could say, see, oh, oh weeping and mourning over Jerusalem. Oh, isn't God so happy with me because I'm so sad. God says, haven't you learned your lesson? Like at some point, are you going to actually learn this thing? This was exactly your problem when Jerusalem was inhabited before. And now you're coming and you're asking me the same thing. Did you not learn? And so he says, this is what I needed you to do. He lists some things uh, in verses 8 to 10. We'll come back to those in just a minute. But he says, I asked you to do a bunch of things that had nothing to do with the work of your hands, but the alignment of your heart. But you didn't do what I asked you to do. You refused to pay attention. Your hearts, God says, became diamond hard. And so in, in chapter 7, verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. That's how important it is to focus on the things that we are instead of the things that we do. But God also wants his people to know, while he was angry with them for a while, his anger didn't last forever. As soon as the orientation of their hearts changed, so too did God's posture toward them change. Jumping down to chapter 8, verse 14. God now speaking to the people who were there, not the people who came from Persia. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster on you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. 
It's not that God is, is uh, you know, has this strange, capricious tendency where he just says, ah, okay, I think it's time to bless you now, so now I'm going to bring you blessing. It's not that. It's that the people had done the things they needed to do. Here's the point of all this. What was true of God in Zechariah's time is true of him in our time as well. God never changes. Our tendency might be to focus on rebuilding. As we look at rebuilding here, it might be to focus on getting our programs right. It might be to focus on doing the right things. What programs should we run? What programs shouldn't we run? And some of you may may be anticipating that uh, I would come up with uh, some clever new ideas for programs and uh, unveil this plan to you that involves, look at these programs we're running and these are what, this is what we're going to do. Um, and, and as though that is the key to our rebuild. So I'm going to burst your bubble. That's not the key. The truth is, and this is one of those moments where I love you and I need to tell you this. The truth is that we didn't get here because we were running the wrong programs. And we're not going to get out of it by running the right ones. Our focus, my focus as your pastor, is helping us become and continue to be the kind of people God desires us to be so that he can apply his power to our church. And we can see kingdom transformation. What are those things? What are those conditions that God sets? He actually gives two lists. The first one, if you flip back again to chapter 7. In verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. Flip over to chapter 8 again, verses 16 and 17. God says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Some overlap between those two lists. What we end up with are are six uh, important issues, six character issues that God talks about here that we need to pay attention to. Because that's the conditions, those are the conditions that bring about kingdom success. We have time today for two. Um, So don't worry, I'm not going to try to hit all six today. We have time for two today. We're going to hit the next four next week, okay? Um, And and just so you know, I'm not going to take them in order of appearance. I'm going to take them in the order that I think is most impactful. So if I'm wrong, oh well. Um, But that's sort of the order I'm taking them in, okay? Six key characteristics of being that help us become the people that God needs us to be in order for him to show his power through us, okay? First one is this. If we want to be kingdom people, we have to speak truth to one another. That's what God says in in chapter 8, verse 16. Um, Speaking the truth is pretty easy when you agree with the person you're talking to, right? Like, it's, it's easy to do. More important question is whether or not we are willing to speak the truth to one another when we're pretty sure that doing so is going to be really, really hard. You think about, like, the truth is hard to tell, which is weird because, like, we believe that there is such a thing as truth. And it's objective and unchanging, and yet when it comes to actually being open and honest with one another, it's hard to do. Why? Well, I think first, telling the truth is hard because speaking the truth sometimes means that we have to tell the truth about someone else to them. You follow what I'm saying there? You have to tell someone else, listen, you think that what you're doing is right, but I have to tell you that it's wrong. And that's really, really hard. Nobody likes being told that. But the second reason that telling the truth is hard is because it sometimes means telling the truth to someone else about ourselves. That's actually the harder one, right? Like, 
telling the truth, we speak the truth. Whenever we hear that in church, we kind of think that this is talking about confronting other people in their sin. Yes, that's true. That's one element of speaking the truth. The one I want to focus on today is that second one. It's telling each other the truth about who we are. But what we struggle with It's owning responsibility for the things that we have done. All of those things are very, very difficult. In other words, speaking the truth to one another requires us to be vulnerable and be authentic with one another. And we've breathed in the cultural air that vulnerability equals weakness. Therefore, I cannot be vulnerable. And and to be sure, when you practice vulnerability... It is very, very risky. It is a risky thing. Because what vulnerability means is that you are giving someone else the ammunition that they need in order to hurt you. But you are trusting them not to use it. That is a huge risk. Why would anyone give another human being an advantage like that one? because that's what the kingdom is made of. That's the answer. Because the economy of God's kingdom inverts everything we know about power and authority on earth, and in God's kingdom, weakness equals strength. So let me give you a specific, let me put a point on this a little bit for you. So think right now about uh, a relationship that you have that maybe isn't going as well as you would like it to go. Start with the closest circle. If you're married, start with your spouse. If you're not married, start with your parents. Expand the circle then. If you have kids, think about your relationship with your kids. If you have friends because you don't use a checklist, think about the relationship with your friends. Think about something that you you go, this is not going as well as it can be, and I can't figure out why. This week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to practice vulnerability in that relationship. And because I want to show leadership in this, I'm going to tell you about me. Um, and just so you know, I, Steph and I have the kind of relationship where she already knows this about me, so this is not like me, like, I really don't want to sit down with her, so I'm just going to preach it and hope she doesn't notice. No, that's not, that's not what it is. So here's my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that I will not be good enough. Not a good enough husband, not a good enough dad, not a good enough pastor, so on and so forth. Part of this comes from my past and how I grew up, which involved the psychological terror of bullying and and sort of being told that you weren't really worth anything. But a lot of it comes from my own desire just to push to be the very best. I'm very, very hard on myself. Now, Steph knows this to be true about me. And if she chose to, she could use this in a pretty big way to hurt me. She could drop subtle hints here and there that she was a little bit disappointed in me or that I'd let the kids down. Really any variation on those things. And I would just be a wreck. I would go into a complete tailspin. But here's the thing. I love my wife. My wife loves me. And she will not use that ammunition against me. She has everything she needs to just wipe me out emotionally. But I know that she won't do it. And now you have those tools too. That's just an example. And it's short, you know, your conversation might go longer than that. But I want you to know that I am not going to ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. Your example is gonna be different. Right? Your example might not actually be background stuff like that. It might be something like, you know, you're having this loggerheads argument with someone and neither of you can find resolution because neither of you is willing to just say, you know what? I'm really mad at you right now, but I've realized that I'm responsible for this too. And I'm sorry. And whatever I need to do to make this right, I'm going to do that. Even if the other person says, ha! I knew it. Even if they say that, you still have the obligation. 
whatever it is that look, whatever it looks like in your life, my challenge to you is the same. Practice telling the truth and start by telling the truth about yourself to someone else. It's scary. You won't want to do it. Don't text me and tell me that because I know. <laughs> it's, of course it is. But listen, it's not an option for kingdom people. God doesn't say, you know, if it feels good, tell the truth. He says, speak the truth. Telling the truth is one thing. That's a, that's a critical aspect of becoming the kind of people that God needs us to be. The second one, the last one I'm going to talk about today, is this. If we want to be kingdom people, then we have to show kindness and mercy to one another. Chapter 7, verse 9 is where I get this from. Ah, there, there's so many different directions I could take with this because this is a massive topic, right? Um, so, but I, I want to I zero in on something. Just take a small corner of this this morning that I think is important for us. So, we live in a culture where it is really easy to hang around with people who are like you, right? And, and we build uh, uh, relationships based on affinity in a lot of ways. But even if you're not aware of this, your life, the content of your life, is curated for you. Someone else gets to decide what you get to see in your life. This is not the pastor ranting against social media, okay? I have a Facebook account. I'm just an introvert, and I just don't really find use for it. But it's not that it's bad. But Google, Facebook, Netflix, um, video on demand, all these things. Have you ever seen that little part that says recommended for you? How do they know? Because they have an algorithm. That's why. Because they look at everything that you do and filter all of that stuff through that algorithm. And they say, ah, so this is something that you would like. It's something that you already do like. They're not challenging you to grow. It's like, here's another thing, just like the other thing we just showed you, because it would be hard for you to think we understand. But honestly, it's not, it's not the fact that these companies do this. Facebook does this, your Google search history does this, all of those things. But it's just reflecting a broader trend in society that honestly, that's what we want. We want to build silos around our own interests and, and let in only those people who agree with our existing point of view. If we're not careful, that tendency can come into our church. And we can hang around with the people who are like us. Whether like us means socioeconomic status, stage of life, gender, age, whatever else it is, we can build those groups based on affinity. Now, I'm not saying that, there, that none of that should happen. That's, that's not what I'm saying. There is room for groups based on affinities within the church. What I'm saying, though, is if that's all we ever do, then we're in for trouble. Because what happens then is we live these parallel lives where we kind of just tolerate each other, you know? Oh, yeah, that person's at Parkland too, but let's talk about all these people over here, right? We tolerate each other and live lives beside each other instead of just embracing the people who aren't like us. And when that happens, we miss something. So I said earlier, Haggai and Zechariah, they're very different, right? So I wonder, what would it be like, right? What would it be like to sit in on a meeting that Haggai and Zechariah have? It's a prophetic ministry meeting, right? So they're there to decide this is how we're going to go about the work of this ministry, right? This didn't actually happen, but just, just work with me here. It's a good illustration. Work with me, okay? Um, so, so Haggai, you know, sits down with Zechariah and he goes, okay, so Zechariah, here, here's the thing. Um, I have this plan. You're going to love this. I have this plan. I'm going to gather all of the priests together, okay? And then I'm going to stand in front of them. Check this out. I ha I'm going to ask them a question about the interpretation of the law. Isn't that great? I've got this whole holy meat in the fold of the garment thing. Oh, man, it's going to be so good. It's going to kill, you know? What about you, Zechariah? Like, what are, what are you going to do, right? And Zechariah just sits there and he goes, I see horses. And they're so colorful. Oh, now it's a woman in a basket. This is so cool. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read Zechariah 1 to 6. And so Haggai in his mind is thinking like, dude, can you not just be serious for five minutes of your life? Like if you were serious, then we might actually get something done. We are never going to get through the agenda tonight if you don't stop talking about horses. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zechariah is sitting there and he's like, man, why you got to be such a square? 
Loosen your time, man. Live a little. If you were more relaxed, we'd actually get something done around here. The truth is that these two men were so different because God's message that he needed to speak to his people was so rich and so profound and so deep that it takes both Haggai and Zechariah. Some of you here today are Haggai. And if you are, when I said that, you just said, yeah, that's a factual statement. I can agree with that. Some of you here today are Zechariah and you're like, yeah, that's me. Zechariah, mm. If you're a Haggai, your tendency is going to be to look down on the people who are Zechariahs. You think that they're impractical. You think that their feet are on the ground. You say things like, you're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Ooh. Too on the nose, maybe? No? Ah, hey. I liked it. I Personally, I liked it, but that's okay. But if you're a Zechariah, your tendency is to look down on the hey guys and say, poor you, if only you were more spiritual. You would see the things that I see. What do you bring to the table? You bring metaphors. And that's a nice signet ring metaphor, hey guy, but I got a vision. If only you were more spiritual. But if we want to unlock the richness of God's kingdom message that he wants to communicate through us, then we have to understand that we need Haggai and Zechariah. So you might have guessed this about me, but just so you know, I am a Haggai, okay? I love me some systems and some order. Mm, Yeah, I love me some procedures. I am not joking, actually, I do. For fun, for fun, I make spreadsheets, And I parse Greek verbs, right? Like, for fun, I do those things. When I get get a box of Lego, the greatest joy that I have is opening it up and arranging all the pieces just so and following the instructions precisely so that it comes out looking exactly like it did on the box. And if you doubt me, I have several examples in my office to prove it's true. But... Wait, before I get to that. And, as a Haggai, I have never experienced the kind of vision from the Lord that Zechariah talks about. The kind of dreamscape vision with symbolic meanings. I have metaphors. They're really good. Right? Come on, give, give, help a brother out. Thank you. Okay, uh, they're, they're good metaphors, but they're just metaphors. They're not visions. That's the best that I can do. But I am married to a Zechariah. And Steph is like so much more free-spirited than I am. And systems and order and all of this, I asked her if I could say this, by the way. Systems and order and everything just tie her down and make her feel like, like it's just like death to her, right? For fun, for fun, while I'm making spreadsheets, for fun, Steph gets out a canvas, a blank canvas, and a whole bunch of really colorful paints and just makes something. For fun. If she gets a Lego set, the first thing she does is open the box, throw out the instructions... Open every bag and just dump it all into the same pile with all the rest of the Lego and just make something different out of it. And my head goes, ah, you put the blues in with the greens. Ah, that's a two by eight piece. Wow, what are you doing? Like, uh, I wish I was kidding you, but I'm not. As a Zechariah, Steph has seen the kinds of things that just blow your mind. And God has shown her some things. Her metaphors aren't as good as mine, all right? But... The stuff she's seen is amazing. Now, at first in our marriage, we, we kind of tolerated this about each other, right? So like I would, I would make this, this Greek verb paradigm, right? I mean, first year Greek. And I, I, would, I would make it on an index card and I would get my ruler and I would draw the lines just right. And I actually, lit, I'm, I'm not kidding, I would actually throw out the index card if the line went too high and be like, that's not good enough. You know, next one, get the ruler out. Oh, and it makes me so happy. 
And I would go to her with it and I'd be like, hey, check this out. Look how factual this is. Look at, how fact- look at the lines and the factualness of it. It has all of the right case endings. Isn't this wonderful? And she would look at me and go, that's nice. And in her mind, she's thinking, you really need to get out more. But then, like, we'd be talking, and Steph would, Steph would say to me, like, okay, man, I want to tell you about this dream I had last night because, like, it was so weird, and, and I'm not sure what God's telling me through this, so let me tell you about what my dream was like. And she'll tell me about these dreams. And it's not, you know, colorful horses riding in different directions, but it's, it's uh, um, uh, spiritual visions and stuff like that. And she would tell me about it, and I would look at her, and I'd go, yeah, that's nice. And in my mind, I'm thinking, stop eating cheese before bed, right? Like, it's just not doing good things for you. Praise God, though, early on in our marriage, not not too long in, we we discovered that if we wanted to be effective in God's kingdom together, then we needed to do more than just tolerate each other. We needed to value each other's approaches, respect that that was the way that God spoke through and to each of us, and learn those things from each other that we needed to learn. Because the truth is that sometimes steps me to break down to anchor her. She needs me to systematize. She needs me to break down a problem into its constituent parts so we can look at it and come to a solution. But I need her. Because I need her to show me that sometimes the disorder is exactly what makes the thing beautiful. And because we recognize that, and because we've been working to cultivate that over the course of many years, God has been able to accomplish more through the two of us together than he ever would have been able to separately as individuals. And it's the same thing for us and for our church. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's really, really important. Anything that we accomplish for the kingdom, we accomplish together. And if that's the case, then we have to understand that the people who are the least like us are the ones from whom we can learn the most. They can teach us the most. If you're a hey guy who loves spreadsheets and agendas like me, then you need to be involved in the things that make that possible. If you're a Zechariah and you feel tied down by things like agendas and strategic plans and all of those things, hallelujah, praise God, because if everyone was like me, this would be the most boring place in the world. There is room for each, and not just that. There is value in each. I don't know exactly how this, how this plays out in the context of Parkland going forward, but here's the commitment that I'm going to make to you and that I think we need to make to each other, that we are going to do more than just tolerate each other. We are going to do more than just embrace each other's difference and weirdness. We are going to value one another. We're going to find people whose approach differs from us and we're going to say, can you teach me about that? Because I need to learn. And we're going to give each other dignity. And that's a way that we show kindness to one another. That's a way that we show mercy to one another. And that's a way through which God's kingdom moves forward and advances. I said earlier that it's easier to be the kind of people who do the right things than it is to be the kind of people who are the right people. The sentence was awkwardly structured. I think you can see why I say that because the work of character building is really hard. Man, it's really hard. And there's more to come next week, you know, because we have four more things to discuss next week. And so the question that you might be asking in your mind right now is, okay, like, is this actually worth it? Is this something that we need to be doing? Like, 
so, okay, God says to that, but like, why? What's going to happen? What will the end result be if we do these things? How will God use these? What will he bring about? And the answer to those questions is profoundly amazing. And I'll give it to you next week because I want you to think about it the whole week. Father, we are your people. We are your church. And we know that you have brought us together. We believe that you, Jesus, assemble the body, assemble the church just so, giving it everything that it needs in order to accomplish the task to which you've called us. And this morning, Father, we understand that Parkland Fellowship, your congregation at Parkland Fellowship, that we are your people. God, we acknowledge, though, that we have not always been your people. That we have not always focused on the things that make us the kind of people that, through whom you work. And we know this, God, because we've seen from the people of Israel that disaster, like blessing, comes from you. And God, we feel often like what we've experienced here at Parkland isn't a disaster on the magnitude of the people of Israel, but God, that it has been difficult. And we acknowledge that it is something that you have brought And because that's true, Father, we want to learn, we want to seek what is it you're trying to say to us? What are you trying to call us to? Who are you asking us to be? Father, these things that that you ask us to do, these, these character things, these being things, are so difficult and they're so, they take so much work. And we confess to you, Father, that, that there are times when we don't really feel like doing it because it's hard. In those times, God, give us strength. In those times, God, anoint us with power that we can take that very next step that we need to take. Give us hearts that are relentless in pursuit of your call, not just hands that will do, but hearts that will become. Because we know, God, that that is what you call us to. That's our task. Strengthen us with power. Give us the courage to be able to go out and to do the things that we've talked about today. Knowing that as a result of this, your name, Jesus, will be lifted high that you will be glorified and that through your power, Holy Spirit, we will see kingdom transformation come about in this city on earth as it is in heaven. And that is the thing to which we aim. And it's the purpose that we never let out of our sights because we are your people. And we thank you and praise you in the great name of Jesus. Amen.